Awesome. Great job, guys. Thank you. Always nice morning when we could hear Pink Floyd in church, right? So, love it. Love it. Got Floyd fans here? Anyone? Yeah? There we go. Got some people, eh? Well, that's awesome. <laughs> well, good morning again. Uh, my name is Jordan, as I introduced myself earlier, and I'm the adult ministry pastor here at Soul Sanctuary. Uh, it's good to be sharing today. Pastor Jerry um, is actually away speaking at a camp out in Saskatchewan. And so that's kind of my old um, stomping grounds. And he's out at Living Waters Camp this week, um, speaking at their family camp. And he's definitely experiencing some culture shock, I think, as he's headed out to Saskatchewan. Uh, over the last few days, he's been texting me, Jordan, there is sand here. There's sand. There's sand, sand, sand. So somebody, if you have Facebook, go on to his uh, profile at some point here. Not while I really start talking, but maybe right now. And write, Pastor Jerry, is there sand out there in Saskatchewan? And um, he'll kind of get the joke, and we'll laugh about it. So, uh, but he's out there, and I am here. And um, this morning, we are continuing in our series that we've started for this summer, Help My Family Needs Healing. And this morning, we are going to be talking about the joy of generosity. We are going to be talking about, as you heard from the uh, coffee song, a little bit about finances, a little bit about money. And so let's just get right into it here this morning. Um, I'm going to be 100% honest with you as we start. I wish I was smart enough and good enough with numbers, and even proven enough, if I could say it that way, with finances, that I could just come up here this morning and give you this awesome model for financial success, right? That everything you do will just turn to gold. Every investment you make will pay you back 10 times. And I, you know, I, I really wish that I could come up here and do that. I wish that I could come up here and give you a 100% proven model for how to solve debt problems and guarantee success. But truthfully, I can't do that. <laughs> That's just not where I'm at personally. And this past week, when I was talking to my wife about this week's life lesson, I said to her that this, I find this to be a, a challenging topic to discuss. In fact, this is my first time ever really talking about money in church. I've kind of gotten out of it before by being the youth guy, right? And, you know, they don't want you talking about money because you'll, you know, mis misdirect something or do something, right? And so, but here I am talking about it today. And um, I accidentally said all of what I just said to you to Nicole. And I said to her these words. This is a challenge for me to do because I'm definitely no Gord Ramsey. That's what I said to her, okay? I said, I'm definitely, yeah, and some of you chuckled and kind of got what was happening there. You see, what I meant to say to Nicole was that I am definitely no Dave Ramsey, right? And, and, and Dave is like this church kind of financial guru, if I could call him that, right? And uh, I, I've heard a lot of people talk about his stuff, and apparently he's got great advice on budgeting and getting out of debt and how to manage finances and whatnot. But I accidentally, you know, to the laughter of my wife, said Gordon, and then I realized he was a chef uh, as she continued to laugh, right? And a master chef at that. And, uh, you know, and she was like just straight out laughter. Like, you know, she doesn't even hide it from me, right? Uh, some people would be polite and be like, oh, I think you meant Dave, right? No, her would just laugh out loud, right? So I may, I may need a hug later if you're interested, okay? Might be able to use that. You know, uh, uh, James has been at the lake lately and the hugs around the office are a little less, right? And so some of you know what I'm talking about. But this morning, I'm going to bring... I'm sorry, I'm not going to bring a master plan for financial success, unfortunately. So I hope you are not looking for that. Periodically, though, throughout the church year, uh, we, do, we do offer school and ministry courses. 
And um, I know this past winter, um, our steering committee member, Steve Beal, taught a great course this past winter. And I know many people who benefited from it greatly. And in that course, you talk about budgeting and you talk about finances. And I believe you talk about debt and all that kinds of things. And so keep your eyes out because, you know, periodically we do offer those kind of things here at Seoul. But what I do aim to accomplish over the time that we have this morning is I want us to take a look at the scriptures. Sound like a good idea? And perhaps catch a glimpse of some of the advice that we can get from the scriptures on this subject of money. And rather than just talking about everything that happens out here or everything out here where uh, maybe we could see visibly, I want us to really focus on what happens in here, inside a person, inside a person's heart when it comes to this topic of giving. And when I look through the scriptures, particularly in the New Testament, there are a few words or a few thoughts that come to mind, and here are some of them. I think of stewardship. That's one word that comes to mind. Generosity comes to mind. But I think more than anything, I think the word that stands out to me the most just might be gratitude. And so let's look at that today. Oh, PK's already up on the screen. I just want to start with a couple stories of generosity. PK Subban used to play for the Montreal Canadiens, recently traded to Nashville, and I'm not going to spend my time this morning, you know, unpacking that whole trade because we're in church, but if you're a Montreal Canadian fan, you lost, okay? And um, I'm just going to leave it at that. And uh, P.K. Subban used to play for the Canadians, and uh, a couple years ago, he made this huge donation to the Children's Hospital in Montreal. He ended up giving $10 million to them. And it was something that was in the media, and it was celebrated, and it was exciting. There's something about generosity, I think, that causes us to celebrate. It causes us to take notice. It causes us to be like, wow, that's really cool. Now, I don't know where he was coming from personally, but as you can see in the picture here, he wasn't walking up to his donation, you know, just dragging his feet, dreading the fact that he was going to have to give away $10 million. But in every interview, every comment I seen after he did this, I just could see joy kind of in his face, happy. I think his exact quote was, I'm happy that I can finally give back to so many who have given to me. I thought it was a neat thing. Gratitude, generosity has this way of being a bit contagious. Uh, a couple years ago, here in the city, at a Tim Hortons drive-thru, um, funny, I googled this this past week, and the first story that came up when I googled Winnipeg Tim Hortons drive-thru was this story this past February about a, a double assault that happened between two customers in a drive-thru, right? And I was like, okay, that's not the one I'm looking for here, right? But the one I was looking for was from 2012, and it was this uh, story about... Um, one guy decided to pay it forward and take the person behind him's bill in the drive-thru. And this carried on for a long, long time. I think it got up to 280-some people. Um, everyone who came to the window just said, let me pay for the person's uh, drink behind me, right, or, or their food order behind me. And it ended when some guy got up there with three large coffees and decided, yeah, I'm in a piece. I'm just going to take it, right? And he, he just kind of got out of there. But it made headlines because this kind of generosity is something that we don't always see or hear about in our world. Um, it's exciting. It's something to celebrate. Uh, there's something good about it. Uh, generosity just really brings off a good vibe, and so we celebrate it even in our news, even in our newspapers and stories. And so what does the Bible say about stewardship and giving? What are some things that we can look at from Scripture? Well, let me start in 1 Corinthians in chapter 8 and verse 6. We read here, There is but one God the Father from whom all things came, and from, for whom we live, and there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, and through whom we live, right? And so, 
in the Bible, we get this teaching, we get this idea that God is our source, that what we have is from him, that we literally sang about it this morning. It's his breath in our lungs, right? So we pour out our praise, right? We have breath because God wills it. And so he is our source. He is our provider. He's the one who, 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 who richly provides for each and every one of us. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus, and it's not, it's not, it's not on there, don't worry, I'm, I'm kind of jumping off the page here, but Jesus is talking in the Sermon on the Mount about worrying and worrying about buying stuff and worrying about how you're going to do this and how you're going to do that. And he talks about, you know, seek, seek, seek first the kingdom, seek me first, and all these things will be taken care of for you. In James chapter 1 and uh, verse 17, we read that every good and perfect gift comes from above. And so we could thank God. We, 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 we could look at what we have and we could, you know, at any time throughout our day, throughout our week, look up and give thanks for the good gifts that he gives to each and every one of us. Jesus says he causes the, the, the sun to shine on the just and the unjust and he causes the rain to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. And I used to hear that and I used to think, well, that means good things and bad things happen to people until I realized that it was a farming analogy. And what Jesus is actually communicating there is good things. Because if you're going to have a successful crop, you're going to need rain and sun, right? So it got me rethinking that whole story. In 1 Peter 4.10, we read this. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And so each of us has been given a gift from God. Each of us needs to manage that what God has given to us, our time, our treasures, and our talents. Jesus tells a story about people who were given talents in Matthew chapter 25, and the one thing he criticizes in the story isn't necessarily how well their talent was used, but, but this idea that you must use it, right? The only one who was looked down upon in that story was the person who buried their bag of gold and didn't invest it into anything and just kind of left it there. And so Peter points out that there has been grace given to each person in the family of believers, and therefore each of us has something to contribute. Each of us has something uniquely that God has given us that we can contribute to the overall body of Christ. That's an exciting thing. Let's look at Malachi. Here's that classic verse where we talk about tithing and where we get our, um, the lots of our theology from this idea of tithe from. It says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. And so this talk in Malachi is referring to the offering that was given in the temple. And tithe literally can be translated one-tenth or ten percent. That's literally what he's talking about here. And under the temple system, the people were to give their tithes and bring them into the storehouse, if you will. And God said, you could even test me in this. Test me by your giving and, and, and see that I will not provide for you. And so we turn to the New Testament. Because what I often hear and what we often hear from people when we read this verse in Malachi is people often hear, well, that's Old Testament. Anyone ever said that before? Anyone ever thought that before? Well, that's Old Testament, isn't it? And so Jesus himself, what did he say about money? Well, Jesus talked about giving even more, but the emphasis of Christ wasn't just on a percent, but as much as it was on living as people who were generous, people of generosity, which in a lot of ways, I would argue, Jesus often called people to even greater measures of giving than what the law did. 
You don't have to read too far to read the story of the rich young ruler, right? And there's other stories in there where Jesus is calling people to different levels of giving. And in Matthew chapter 23, 23, uh, he's given the Pharisees a hard time for how they've kind of missed the boat, how they've kind of missed the greater matters of his teaching. And he says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And here he's talking about the a tithe of sorts. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And so Jesus, this is the closest he gets to on, on, on really talking about the Malachi verse. He affirms the gift. He says to them, you know what, you've done well by giving your gift, by giving your tenth. But in the process, you've missed something. And Jesus insists on focusing on the condition of the heart. He insists on focusing on what he calls the greater matters of the law. And so we ask the question this morning, why? What is the motivation behind the instruction of Scripture to give and to be good stewards? What's the motivation behind it? Why do we do it? Why is this so important to God? You know, we talk about so many issues, and the church is known for so many things that they're either for or that they're either against, and yet this is one of the topics that's talked about most in all of Scripture. This whole idea of money, finances, giving, stewardship, gratitude, if you will. And so let me just begin answering this why question by talking about what giving is not about, okay? Um, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And so giving is not about trying to be seen by others. Giving is not about trying to, you know, go around and get everyone to see what you have done, right? And, 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 and because that praise from men is way too little than what God has in mind for you. Does it, do, do people sometimes see us when we give? Absolutely. It, it's just going to happen sometimes, right? So maybe you'll walk to one of the joy baskets. Maybe you'll go somewhere and give, and maybe someone will see it. And, you know, sometimes that could happen, but the attitude of your heart can't be about wanting their praise. There's a far greater component, and that's giving praise to the one in heaven and getting praise from him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 7 and 8, oh, is that one not in there? Okay, we'll come back to that one later on. That's one where it talks about giving isn't to be done with reluctance, but God loves a cheerful giver. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 8, and let's read this as our story for this morning. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. 
As they exceeded our expectations, they gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. I want us to look at this story for a few minutes today and possibly just take a few lessons and a few ideas of what it means to be generous and what generosity perhaps in the New Testament was all about. So let me give you the backstory here really quickly. Persecution had broke out in the church of Jerusalem at this point after Stephen was killed. He was the first Christian to be put to death. He's known as the first Christian martyr. Um, and Paul, Saul, at the time was seen given approval to his death. And so persecution had broken out in the church, and oddly enough, rather than causing the gospel message to slow down and the people to be afraid and to maybe step back a little bit, what happens is the message actually continues to spread. And not only does it continue to spread, but it spreads in ways that maybe it hadn't before. It's reaching all sorts of new groups, all sorts of new people. In fact, I would say the urgency behind the message had just ramped up many, many, many times after this terrible thing had happened. And that's the nature of the gospel message, is that it naturally wants to spread and goes beyond whatever heritage or custom that tries to keep it to themselves. You can't say that this is our gospel. We can't take the gospel. We dare not take the gospel and try to Canadianize it or try to make it into something that we want it to be because the very nature of the message of Christ is that it transcends any cultural barriers. And it reaches out to those who are different and it keeps on going, okay? Um, Paul is writing to the people in Corinth, and earlier he talks about a collection that they were going to be taken up. And so in a previous letter, he talked to them about a collection, an offering, if you will, that the churches were going to be taken up for the, the persecuted ones out in Jerusalem who are going through some really, really, really tough times. And as he wrote this, as he wrote and talked about this letter, there were other churches that were also going through tough times. And among those churches was the Macedonian church. And apparently, the Macedonian church was skipped in the collection of money. They weren't asked because they didn't have any money, and so they were skipped, you know, Paul must have reasoned, you know, they don't have anything to give. They can't really uh, necessarily write a check right now. So why guilt them about it? Why, you know, put shame on them? Why stress them out even more? And so they were skipped in this offering. They weren't, they, they, they weren't even approached about it. And so Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, a church who had committed to give, and they said that they'd be a part of this collection that was being taken up. But as of the writing of this letter, they actually haven't given any money which never happens in our world, right? As of the, the writing of this letter, they haven't given any money. And so Paul writes them, knowing that he's going to be coming through Corinth, and, he set, and so he, he begins to talk about the Macedonian church. And he begins to talk about that in the midst of their extreme trial and their extreme poverty, that they welled up in rich generosity. 
entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us with their urge to share in this service to the Lord's people. It's on the screen. And so why does Paul say that they urgently pleaded with us? Well, he says that because they literally were left out. They left them out. And they were like, no, 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 no. How dare you keep us from this? We want to be a part of this. We want to be a part of God's work just as much as you do. We want to be a part of this collection that you're taking up. It's almost as if they interrupted or contacted Paul and said to him, like, you know, what are we, poor? And interestingly enough, Paul could have answered with integrity in that moment, yes. It appears that way. That's exactly it. And we didn't want to burden you. We didn't want to make you feel bad. We didn't want to put any extra stress or pressure on you. And yet, for these persecuted and impoverished Christians, there was something within them that despite their circumstances, they wanted in. They wanted in. They were going to be a part of this work of the gospel in Jerusalem. They would not be denied that right. They wanted the opportunity to give. They wanted to be a part of this collection that was going around. And so Paul, in this letter, is writing to the church in Corinth here. And it's as if he's going like this. I'm just saying, guys, if I come to Corinth and you have collected nothing even though you said you were going to collect, but you've collected nothing, but then I go through poor Macedonia, and they've collected for the offering, then this is going to be awkward. And so if you're Paul, think about it. You're in some very, very tricky relational waters here. Does it make sense? You're in some very, very tricky relational waters in this very moment. How do you let the Corinthians know that if I show up with the poor Macedonians and they have money, and you who do have money and said that you would give money still haven't collected anything, you know, that's going to be something that you are not going to want to happen, right? And so how does Paul say to them, you have a couple of days to get your act together or it's going to get awkward here? What does he do? He simply says to them, I want to tell you guys a quick story. And how does he frame it? Well, he frames it around the grace that God has given to the Christians in Macedonia. He's not saying that these Macedonians are making you guys look like chumps, right? He's not lecturing them. He's not yelling at them. He, he, he's not saying they're, they're, they're totally showing you up here. No, but he's saying, I want to tell you about the grace that they've been given. These Macedonians that during poverty were not only able to get money together, but they're also sending people to carry it off to Jerusalem, which if I were to show you a biblical map, it's a pretty long distance. And there were no airplanes and there were no cars and you know, transportation was kind of foot or maybe animal at that point in time. Which raises this question, have the people in Macedonia even met the people in Jerusalem? And the answer to that is most likely no. It was such a long distance. And these people in Macedonia have never even met these people on the other side of the world where they're giving, on the other side of their world, sorry. It would have been a lot different back then. And they want to desperately give money to them. Friends, that is church. Are you with me? That is church. The gospel need way over there should concern us 
just as much as the gospel need right here, right? We're concerned about them. They're concerned about us. We are the church of Jesus Christ. And from the beginning, it was basic practice in the church that you would give, to give to people around you and even to give to those who you haven't met. Generosity was built into the original DNA of the church. And so when Paul describes it, he doesn't say, you know, man, those Macedonians, are they ever loaded? No. He calls their desire to give to people they have never met. You know what he calls it? He calls it grace that God has given to them. He refers to it as grace. You see, God had shown these people grace and they experienced it and it deeply affected how they thought about themselves and it deeply affected how they thought about those around them. This grace wasn't just something that happened. You know, it was something that deeply, deeply was entrenched within them. Think about it this way. Maybe you accepted the grace of Jesus Christ when you were just a kid. Maybe when you were 10 years old, you accepted the grace of Jesus Christ. Maybe you accepted God's grace when you were a teenager and that's wonderful and that's awesome. But guess what? You're not done. You're not done accepting that. There is joy to be experienced. And if you want that joy of Christ, then you and I need to accept and receive God's grace every single day as we wake. We have opportunity to experience his grace right now in this very moment. Think about it this way. Every day we eat and get full, right? But every day we must eat again in order to fill up, right? I can't eat today and expect to be full on Wednesday. But on Wednesday, I need to eat in order that I would be full then, in order that I would, you know, be full and satisfied in that way. And one of the reasons we don't often experience this joy, I believe, is because perhaps we develop bad habits of also not receiving God's grace daily and not being conscious of that gift and not reflecting on what an amazing and precious thing that it is. And I'm not going to lie to you. I think that this is a very difficult thing to do. I really do. I, I think that this is something that's difficult to do because we've all been given gifts to an extent, haven't we? Let me use some examples. Now, this isn't everyone in the room, unfortunately. Like, you know, but, you know, for, I'm kind of generalizing a little bit here. But we've all been given gifts to some extent. Eyes. You know, we've been given eyes so that we can see. We've been given mu muscles, if you will, so that we can lift things. We've been given this ability to appreciate things. How many of you can appreciate things? Anyone? But eventually... As you age, your eyes may in fact deteriorate and perhaps your muscles may do the same. Perhaps you will not be able to lift later on in life that you could have in, when you were younger in life. But your ability to appreciate will stick with you always. Your ability to appreciate things will stick with you always. And we are so good at appreciating but it is what we appreciate that can sometimes trip us up. And so what do we appreciate? We often appreciate what we don't have. Is that a stretch? Think about it this way. I'll just give you some examples. That awesome car that the neighbor drives, man, do I appreciate that thing, right? Just looking over in that driveway every day, pulling up. It's, just, it's a real privilege just to look over sometimes and see that thing. 
or that great house of theirs. Man, they even have a deck on their garage, and they sit there in the summer. Okay, I may be coveting a little. I'll quit, okay, on, on that part. Or what about those really well-behaved kids? Look at them, how they're just so quiet in the restaurant while mine are going nuts, right? Or that job or he or she has is just amazing, it's awesome, it's excellent. And those things are things sometimes that I think we wish we had, and we can appreciate that. We can appreciate those things. No one had to teach us how to do it. In fact, I think we're pretty good at appreciating things that we don't have. In a lot of ways, it's what keeps stores open. It's what keeps business going, right? Let's, let, let me turn it a little bit here. How about this also? Sometimes I think we appreciate what we once had. Anyone ever been there? Sometimes I think it's easier for us to appreciate what we once have. Uh, I hear it uh, so often, you know, when people speak of um, young children who are now adults and they talk about how just time just flies as you're raising kids. I guess maybe I'll be able to speak to this a little bit more coming up as, you know, we're expecting in October. And um, so that's cool. But, you know, often I hear, right, from people who are presently uh, dealing, people whose children are turning into adults and graduating and going on to different things, I often hear them say to parents with younger children, whoa, the time flies, just appreciate it, love it, and enjoy it. Anyone heard that before? And then you got the young parents, right, who are presently dealing with the young child who always wants to cry, always wants to scream everywhere, and I've heard that sleep is like of the premium, right, if you can get some. And many maybe don't appreciate that as much maybe in the moment there as the person with adult children can. You get, see what I'm doing here? And often it's easy for us to appreciate what we once had, or sometimes it's easy for us to appreciate what we're going to have in the future. We are really good at appreciating what we once had. We're really good at appreciating things we hope to have in the future, but what about appreciating and living in gratitude of what we have right now? Are we good at that? Does that come natural to us? Does that come easy to you? Are we good at appreciating what we have today? And it'd be awesome if we can appreciate all the stuff that we have today, but even greater, what if we could, in, in this moment, always be mindful and appreciative of the grace and love of God that Christ has lavished on us day in, day out? It'd be an awesome thing if we can appreciate the things that we own today, but what if we could appreciate Christ and everything he's done in this moment now, every day? If we filled up on and tasted on that grace daily, would that change things for you? And what if I told you Jesus was willing to help you with that? What if Christ was willing to help you do that? You see, I read this portion of scripture in 2 Corinthians this morning because it reminds me to cherish the grace that God's given to me. These people were given grace, is what Paul says, and they were conscious of it. And out of their extreme poverty, they welled up in rich generosity because of the grace that they had experienced in Christ. These incredibly poor people had this explosion of generosity well up in them. And so maybe based on this kind of thinking from Jesus and from these kind of portions of scriptures, maybe you could say it like this. You can have barely any money and yet in your spirit still be quite rich. And the opposite of that would be, well, maybe you could have lots and lots and lots of money and yet in your spirit still be remaining quite poor. 
you can have barely any money, and yet your spirit can be so bursting, so wide, and so generous that in some strange way you are phenomenally rich. Your very being is loaded with the wealth of God. You give, but it has little to act. It has little to do with actual dollars or amounts that you're putting in. It has everything to do with what's coming from your heart and from what God's done in your life. Your whole being is loaded with the wealth of God. You give and you lavish on others and you give to the work of God. It's this generosity that beams from you and it's based on the very same generosity that you've experienced. And that's God's grace. And that's a work of grace. Perhaps we could say it this way, that our finances don't need to determine our joy. What the Macedonians teach the church in Corinth and the church in general is that they teach us is that there's a joy that is independent of life circumstances that's available to us. There's also a joy that's very dependent of life circumstances that might rise and fall with the, with the stock market or with other things like that. But there's also a beautiful joy that's independent of all that, that as Christians, we can taste and experience daily. This grace can make even a poor person quite rich. Notice what Paul doesn't do to that church in Corinth. And I just want to bring this apart because I, th I, th I think it's important. But notice what Paul doesn't do. Paul, does he drop the law on them in that moment? No. He doesn't bring the law on them. He doesn't go to Malachi. He doesn't start quoting scriptures to them. Does Paul guilt them in that moment? No. He doesn't guilt them. Does Paul say to them, you know, I see how much money you have in your church and I see that you're not giving and that you're so close-fisted. Does Paul bring a whole bunch of guilt on them? No. It's not what he does. Does Paul shame them? Does he publicly shame them? No. How about authority? And here's an interesting one, because Paul, you know, does he come before them and say, hey, I'm Paul. I'm the reason you have a church. I'm the one who told you about Jesus. So I'm telling you that Jerusalem needs the money. Now get it together. Does Paul do that? No. Paul doesn't go about it that way. He doesn't even do comparisons. He doesn't say, well, the Macedonians, I think God loves them a little more than you. Why can't you be more like them? Paul doesn't do anything like that. And I think it's because Paul only knows gospel grace that's given in free will. Paul knows gospel grace given in free will. If I can use a soul analogy, Paul only knows joy boxes, joy baskets, if you will. I messed it up. And this is a prime example of where he has lots of hammers in his toolbox that he could very well bring on them in this moment. This is a prime example of where he could say, do it because you're supposed to, do it because I've commanded it, because God commands it, and the people, you know, get scared, and they go, okay, fine, 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 we'll do it, just give us a few minutes, right? But no, in this prime moment, he doesn't resort to any of that, but he simply trusts that the Spirit of God can grab each heart and do the work in the heart that brings joy, and he won't get in the way of that. In 2 Corinthians 9, 7, we read these words. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
And on a side note, I often, as a pastor, have had people ask me in congregations that I've spoken in in the past why I'm not a little bit more heavy-handed when I preach to people. <laughs> I had people come up to me, Pastor Jordan, why don't you just give them the word, right? Why don't you just hit them with it today? Why don't you just bring the truth across and just, right? I've had people ask me that before, and I heard a pastor talk about this once, and I think my answer really aligned up with where he was coming from. Why don't you just give it to people hard and tough, right? Well, I think the reason why maybe I don't do that a ton is because what I am interested in is the transformation of the human heart. At the end of the day, what Jesus was interested in was our hearts being changed. You see, the law once said, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And fair enough, you could look really good on the outside. You can keep all those things, but no one would ever actually know what was happening on the inside. And then Jesus comes on the scene and turns this stuff out around backwards and says, well, you know, do not commit murder, yes, but don't even let the thing that would cause murder start brewing in your heart or on the inside. And he always turned things inward. And so I'm interested in the transformation of the human heart and if I at any moment use any coercion or if I have violated, you know, that natural, pure, beautiful thing that the Spirit of God wants to do in your heart, I wouldn't want to do that. Because sometimes we can fake it and we could act like we have things together, but it really wouldn't be real, would it? You see, we could simply follow orders from the top, and, you know, many of us can do that, but if we did, we will never know if these things had actually taken root in our hearts but we'd simply be following rules that someone gave us. And the thing that you find again and again and again when you read through the Gospels is that Jesus wanted to touch our hearts. Jesus wanted to transform our hearts. And so for me, when I preach, when I bring the word, I'm not so much interested in getting you to do the right things. I am interested, friends, in our hearts becoming so transformed by the Spirit of God that we can't even do anything but the right things. Are you with me? Does that make sense? And all the ways that Paul could resort to here. <laughs> get ready, guys. You better have that when I get there. But he doesn't do that. He just says, oh, by the way, Corinthians, let me tell you a beautiful story about the grace that's been given to your Macedonian brothers and sisters. You know, they're persecuted. They're in poverty. There's things going on there. Things aren't good. But even in the midst of that, something absolutely beautiful has happened in their hearts and in their time and in their passions and in their offerings and in their giving. Something absolutely beautiful has happened. And they urgently pleaded with me, can we be a part of this work of God? He doesn't resort to any of those things that he could, but he wants them to experience grace and joy that only comes when the Holy Spirit can do an amazing work in the heart of a person. Are you with me? And so in verse 3, he makes this comment, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, and they, they, they gave beyond what they could even give. They gave what they could give. But they even tried to go beyond that. And so this tells me that you and I are capable of way more than we realize. That's what Paul seems to be saying about them here, that these people were capable of more than they even realized. 
And there's a popular thing that I think's crept into the church, and, you know, and that's to get people to do things by making them feel very bad about themselves or feel very terrible about themselves. Anyone ever experienced that before, right? There's podcasts, book, radio shows, all based on this principle, essentially saying that the, the essential way that people are won over to the love of God expressed in Jesus Christ is to make people feel terrible and feel bad about themselves. And then they'll realize in the midst of that how awesome Jesus is. Anyone ever experienced that kind of teaching before in your life? But you see, what's fascinating in the Bible and what's fascinating in Scripture is that you have story and story over story of uniquely broken and sinful people who find out that they are what they are capable of when touched by the power and Holy Spirit of God. And they're capable of extraordinary things. They're capable of more than they even realized they were capable of. And that's what this story is about. These, Math these Macedonians, let me tell you what they did. This is unbelievable. This tells me that you and I are capable of, of, of extraordinary generosity, regardless of what we have, plenty or little with our times, treasures, and talents. The reason I love this passage is because the one thing that Paul's clear on is that these people didn't necessarily have much, and so all of us who are like, well, yeah, you know, that's a great, that's a great idea for people who are millionaires or people, you know, who have tons of money, the one thing Paul says is that these people didn't really have anything, and yet they were capable of stunning generosity. And it never mentioned the amount that they collected, and that wasn't important to Paul. What seemed to matter most was where their hearts were at in their giving. Jesus talks about a widow who puts a coin in and people who drop off great offerings, and yet somehow, by putting her coin in, she, he commends her giving. He commends the richness. There's something deep inside of her that causes her to do that. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 35, we read that it's more blessed to give than to receive, and so giving, giving should be a joy and never a burden. And so don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that you're always going to be skipping, singing joy to the world, to the joy baskets, right? I'm not, I'm not suggesting that that always has to happen every time you do it, right? Remember, we don't always do things simply on emotions. Sometimes sacrifice at first can feel difficult. But often when you get away from it and you really look at things in perspective of grace that you've received, there's a joy in knowing that you are giving to something that will impact, that will help, and that will transform many. And that you could be a part of that work here on the earth. And so how can we give to the ministry of our community? Well, I'll talk about this very shortly. <laughs> uh, the Welcome Center... I constantly give, get asked the question, uh, where, where can I give? I want to give something, where can I give? And uh, perhaps maybe we've been a little guilty of not putting this out in front of you so much. But there's many ways that you can give here at Soul Sanctuary. We have the joy baskets that are at the back, and they're, they're around this principle of giving generously and joyfully, not, not reluctantly. Uh, what, different ways you can give. Check our cash. Place it in the joy baskets located in the back of the room. We do automatic withdrawal, which, which, which has no fees attached to it if you want to give. There's debit, credit, info at the desk. We even have text to give, and there's little cards at the Welcome Center if something like that would ever interest you in giving. We also have a building fund. This building gets used by so many people in the community throughout the week, and it's neat that the relationships and, you know, just the connections that have come out of that. And so feel free to, to give to that. Um, we have co-op cards at the Welcome Center that if you fill up at a co-op here in town, they'll scan the number, and that, a portion of that will be able to go help our building fund. 
But at Soul Sanctuary, at the end of the day, our giving really benefits those of us who attend. It benefits our city. It benefits our community. It benefits the North End with our church plants that are up there. And it also reaches globally as we are giving to those, taking the gospel and standing up for those who need justice around the world. Amen? And so let me end with this. We're going to end off this morning with a quick time of reflection and communion. Let me say this. Giving is at the center of the gospel. In John 3.16, we read, First, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. In Ephesians 5, we read about that same principle of giving as Christ loved himself and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so I think it's fitting. I texted Josh early in the week or last week when I started studying about this, and I asked him, when does communion fall on our church calendar for July? And he told me it's actually this weekend, and I thought, perfect, because I think it fits today. You see, communion is when we acknowledge the extraordinary generosity of God. Communion is where we come face to face with the grace we've been given in Christ. That at the heart of our Christian worldview is this idea that God has been extraordinarily generous to us. Everything begins with that fundamental primal act of his generosity. And Jesus came and he lived and he taught and he healed and he stood up for people and he was crucified, but even greater, he resurrected. And communion reminds us of God's generosity to each of us as individuals, to us as a church body and family and community. And so bitterness, anger, jealousy, despair, these things often come with a sense of entitlement and the sense that maybe we've been shafted or that we've been left out or that we've been shortchanged, but at the center of this discipline known as communion is a reminder that every single one of us is a recipient of extraordinary generosity. You don't have that much money, that's okay. You're having trouble with relationships, God is still generous. We are still recipients of an extraordinary gift, and we can discover that and awake to that, and it really changes everything when we do. As we become generous people, even within our family units, we can model to each other generosity. We pass it down, and we pass it down that we don't just do it because we have to, we do it because the living God has been generous to us. He's done something in our lives, and we are able to be generous with him and others. And so, does anyone here today, as we take communion, need to be reminded of your joy? Does anyone need to be reminded that finances don't always have to dictate that joy? I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. Is there anyone here who is maybe bought into the lie that maybe when it comes to this whole church thing, maybe when it comes to this whole playing a part in the community of Christ that you um, aren't capable of much? Has anyone bought into that lie this morning? Because this morning, I think God wants to awaken us, and he wants to speak to each of us of the lavish, of the super, of the -the over-the-top generosity that he's given each one of us. 
He's given it to us for the receiving and also for the giving. And so as we go to communion, we focus on and we celebrate on what God has given us, given to us, given for us. May we also ponder as we examine ourselves in which ways may we give back to him. May which ways may we give to the furthering of his kingdom work even now. May be reflecting on the grace of God as we do that. May it take us from burden and may it bring us to joy. From dreading to joy for his grace has and will continually change us. Amen. I'll have everyone stand with me this morning. You'll notice the crosses, one on the left here, and well, that's your left, and this is your right. There are tables in the front here with, with bread and cup, and there's tables in the back corner. There's tables in that back, a table in that back corner, and one right here. And so we'll start in the middle. If you're in the first, let's say, six rows, why don't you make your way over to that table, get a cup and bread, and bring it back with you, and then we'll take together. And if you're in the back six, seven rows there, you can grab from that table. This side of the room, first six can go here, back six there. And uh, let's just take some time for self-examination this morning, examining how God has been generous to us. Let's peek into the face of grace and um, allow him to, to speak to our hearts today as we take communion. So as the band begins to play, I just ask you to make your way out of your seats and um, get a piece of bread and get the cup.